Hey everybody, welcome back to the Primary Care Podcast. Uh, today we got a special <clears throat> announcement uh, with how amazing this uh, podcast is blowing up. We're going international. We're uh, we're just exploding in popularity. Um, we've actually been able to upgrade our studio. <clears throat> we now have an official recording studio. It's pretty great. Um, and we now have a, a studio producer. Uh, his name's Bob. Bob, how about you come over here and uh, say hi to the people? Get on the mic and uh, and we'll and say hi. Nope. Oh, yep. I, so Bob's pretty shy. We'll uh, we'll forgive him. Hopefully he'll uh, warm up. And I, it's okay, Bob. You you want to come talk? No, no, he's shaking his head no. Uh, but uh, Bob will take all your questions from the primarycarepod at gmail.com inbox, um, and he'll relay them to me. Um, that way we have a, a seamless team, and now somebody else can edit so it actually sounds decent instead of the garbage it's been. So we're now a two-man team. So everybody say hi to Bob uh, through your phones right now. So, hi, Bob. What what'd you say, Bob? Or I'm going to hold you to that. So Bob says he'll uh, he'll do the introduction for the next one, uh, and we'll go from there. So uh, let's start the podcast today. Uh, Bob says it's time to start, so it's time to start. The Primary Care Podcast is written and edited by a family physician for an audience of other physicians, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, residents, and medical students interested in primary care topics. This is not a podcast for patients and should not be used as medical advice. This is also a personal podcast produced on my own time and solely reflecting my personal opinions. Statements of this podcast do not reflect the views or policies of my employer, past or present, or any other organization with which I may be affiliated. Thank you for listening to the Primary Care Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark List. Here to bring you the latest news, guidelines, and updates from primary care sources around the globe. Keeping it under 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry and I'm not that smart. Welcome back to the podcast, uh, party people and uh, podcast uh, listeners. Today we're going to talk about a a wide range of topics. We're going to do the No Stupid Questions Volume 2. I thought uh, Volume 1 went really well and I thought we should uh, do a Volume 2. So let's get into it today. Uh, first question is, uh, is there anything to take for male infertility to improve pregnancy outcomes and improve sperm quality? So uh, I've had this question now twice in the last month uh, from patients. Uh, I thought it was a good topic for myself to research, so I uh, thought it would be good to share for the podcast. Um, one patient brought in an actual article from the internet, uh, yay, internet medicine, um, that he wanted my opinion on some things from this article. Uh, that might help improve his ability to get his wife pregnant. And then another patient just came in and has asked my opinion about what things he could be doing to improve the chances that him and his wife could get pregnant. So I wanted to look at the evidence and get back to you tonight. So uh, here's here's some thoughts. Well, let's first address some of the topics they bring up in the uh, article that this patient brought in from the internet. I'm not going to say where it came from because it's kind of a shady website anyway, so I don't want uh, people to go there. Um, anyways, uh, what about de-aspartic acid? De-aspartic acid um, is... Uh, D-aspartate, also known as that. It's an um, amino acid. Uh, it's sold as a dietary supplement. Uh, very weak evidence, but there are a couple of different studies. Uh, one study I'll point to um, in scientific research and academic publisher. So again, uh, low, <laughs> low quality journal. Um, but uh, this looked at uh, patients who were uh, subfertile and it looked at uh, this D-aspartate uh, supplement and did increase, and not only the uh, compared to placebo, uh, did uh, increase rates of uh, improvement in sperm concentration, in sperm counts, and uh, improved the effect of uh, pro-pregnancy. So more women got pregnant from the partners who were on this um, than people who were not taking it. So um, very, very, very weak evidence to say maybe Maybe. So the answer to this question is, does D-aspartate work? Uh, the answer is maybe. Um, what about zinc and folic acid? Well, a study actually just came out recently 
This is in JAMA in 2020, uh, January 7th, basically showing there is no effect on folic acid and zinc supplementation on semen quality or live birth. Now, zinc is supposed to help a little bit with testosterone improvement, but again, incredibly, incredibly, incredibly weak evidence to say in that. So the answer is zinc and folic acid, nope. uh, another study on fish oils. Uh, fish oils have been long touted to improve general health without a lot of great benefits uh, or without a lot of great scientific evidence to support it. Um, this is a Danish study, and this is a this is a uh, a really good example of, uh, of of a bad medical study that gets a lot of press. So this was actually in JAMA in 2020. This came on Journal Watch in my inbox um, in Men's Health, uh, January 17, and it says fish oil supplements are associated with better testicular function. And, you know, the comment is, you know, uh, it's cross-sectional study, so you got to be careful what you have. But basically, it improved um, sperm counts, larger testes, and greater semen volume than those who did not. But if you actually go read the study, which is, of course, really super important to do, um, even when a journal watch has a, uh, uh, an article, it doesn't even mean that it's a good study. This was a cross-sectional study where they took uh, 1,700 uh, 18-year-olds, basically, 18 and 19-year-olds, and interview them on their questions on their intake of vitamin supplements. So again, it's a questionnaire-based reporting. No supplements, uh, taking supplements less than 60 days out of the out of a three-month stretch, or taking the supplements greater than 90 days or greater than 60 days in a 90-day stretch. Um, and so there's a dose-dependent effect. And not only did semen volume improve, sperm counts improved, um, but also testicular size improved by 1.5 mils of increased testicular volume. But the caveat is, this is a really garbage study. If you look at, you know, who took supplements, people weren't randomized to the taking these or not. Uh, these were people who were, in general, reported higher levels of very good fitness, 75% of them. The people that did not take supplements, only about 50% of them reported good health. The people in uh, the people who did not take fish oil supplements also were a lot more likely to be smokers. And smoking is highly associated with not only libido issues, testosterone issues, but decreased sperm count, decreased sperm motility, uh, decreased, decreased uh, sperm morphology. Um, so a ton of negative stuff. And we know that exercise is associated with not only boosting testosterone levels, but increasing uh, healthy sperm counts. So uh, this was a uh, an effect where even though the even this you know I, I usually respect to Jay Watch's um, um, opinion about articles. This article is straight trash. Uh, so I, to to put any benefit, uh, this is one of those you know oh the media picks up on you know fish oils are good for better testicular function, um, but it's a garbage study. It's absolutely trash. So I don't think you can make any reference. So the answer is, uh, can you do talk about anything with men? Uh, maybe aspartic acid, maybe D aspartate, um, uh, but definitely preach decrease smoking, increase activity, decrease your stress, and then just in general eat healthy. Don't worry about the um, fish oils. Um, hold on, got to pause the podcast, something personal for a second. Alexa, order fish oils to make my balls bigger. Did the temperature of human bodies actually go down over time? Yeah, so you probably all saw this. It's no longer 98.6 is the average temperature. Uh, they did a bunch of analysis of 677,000 patients over three data sets, the Army the, uh, in the Civil War era, the National Health and Nutritional Exam Survey, uh, and the Stanford Transitional uh, Research Integrated Database Cohort. And so they looked at all these patients, and they said, oh, actually, the average temperature is now 97.9, not 98.6. Uh, is that real? Uh, maybe, maybe. Uh, I think it's reasonable to, to assume that um, back when this was 
first described in 1851, the general health of the average patient was probably pretty poor. They probably had a lot of untreated infections. They probably had a lot of uh, increased inflammation and more more inflammatory body conditions that weren't being treated. I'm assuming that means they probably also uh, exercised less or had uh, worse diets that were more pro-inflammatory. Um, in general, more poor health. So maybe the general body inflammation increased it by 0.7. Uh, does this actually matter? No, I, no, no, no. So did the average human body actually lower? Uh, maybe, probably not. Who cares? Okay, moving on. Next question. How good are healthcare providers at telling patients to stop smoking? Uh, you have heard me talk on this podcast. I had a whole episode about how easy it is and how much of a difference healthcare providers can make in the lives of their patients by getting them to stop smoking, then patients are most likely to listen to their physician more than anyone else in their life to get them to quit smoking. They take that advice to heart. And yet, according to the 2020 U.S. Surgeon General's recent report, up to 40% of smokers are not told by their primary care doctors to stop smoking. Now, sometimes this is because patients don't tell us that they're smoking or not, but I think it oftentimes comes down to the fact that healthcare providers get burned out of talking about the basics, right? We do, we do. It's, it's, we have overweight patients. We should always be telling them it's important that you lose weight. If people aren't eating well, it's important that we tell them to try their best to eat healthy. When we talk about smoking, it is so important that we stress the importance of stopping smoking. That is one of the biggest, most impactful things that we can do. And yet we're supposed to click all these other boxes and all these other bubbles for MIPS and MACRA and ACOs and all this other stuff. And yet the really super duper duper important thing, smoking, which we are supposed to do for those things as well, we oftentimes don't find the time to do because we're too busy doing other things. But when it comes to making their blood pressure 10 points better or getting them to stop smoking, getting them to stop smoking is so much more impactful. So uh, we do a garbage job of, I think it's just because of burnout. I think it's because of lack of time, lack of um, uh, empathy, lack of remembering the important things in life and primary care and smoking, getting your patients to quit smoking, educating them to stop smoking, even if you have to do it every single time they come in, so, 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 so important. Do not forget the value and the number needed to treat to prevent morbidity, mortality, all from stopping smoking. So again, uh, only 40% are being told to on a yearly basis. So let's make sure we keep a good job on that. Next question, does dietary cholesterol actually matter? Uh, answer is no one knows. And again, I think it gets back to the garbage that is dietary science. Uh, so if you hear anything about dietary science, again, always think about it being skeptical. Uh, American Heart Association recently weighed in with this whole controversy about um, red meat intake or no red meat intake. And some groups are saying don't eat it because it's carcinogen. Others are saying it's fine within a healthy diet. Um, two studies have come out recently. Well, two articles. This was a, just a, a clarification from the AHA who basically said there is very little evidence linking dietary cholesterol to cardiovascular risk because it's weak and often contradictory. Uh, and then another study that just recently came out that said it doesn't really matter if you are a vegetarian diet or a high-protein, low-fat diet, as long as you are eating all-natural foods. It's the processed foods. It's the garbage. It's the crap. It's the standard American diet that gets people into trouble. And again, uh, I, I talk about that as being uh, a good positive study. It's weak. It's it's a garbage dietary study. It's talking about um, dietary food questionnaires over the course of a long period of time. So again, uh, I've talked about this pod forever. Don't be 
uh, don't you know sell yourself out, die on some hill um, for a diet plan because in general, all diet plans can work. Some diet plans work better for other patients, some work better for others. But the key is make it work for patients within their own lifestyle and focus on healthy, all natural foods, less processed foods, and not and less on the details, fine details of what they can or cannot eat. Uh, also think about intermittent fasting, but again, that's again still questionable research as well. But don't eat the sad. Next question, is there anything we can do other than statins and PSK9s for cholesterol that actually matter? Well, maybe fish oils question mark, but not much else really matters. The reason I'm whispering is because lipoprotein A is super duper important, big risk factor for cardiovascular disease. We don't measure it because we can't do anything with it, so it's pretty worthless for primary care doctors to know, um, and it's not really modifiable that much. Um, but there's new research coming down the pike on a medication, and you'll hear about it probably in the next year or two, that's going to lower lipoprotein A. That'll be the next big blockbuster drug. It'll probably cost something like Texas with a dollar sign or $11 billion or something. But uh, anyways, more to come on that. But it's not really a question, but I still wanted to talk about it today. Okay, next question. Is sunscreen safe? The answer is probably yes. Uh, this comes into some new data. You know, we know a lot of the compounds that have been in sunscreens historically, uh, and especially spray sunscreens, spray sunscreens, um, have had some uh, dubious uh, information about them and some uh, in vitro, in vitro um, not not real life uh, science behind it, but you know some some questionable bench data on their safety and efficacy. Um, and recently, they talked about there's an article. Um, let's pull it up here, talking about there's a JAM article on the fact that chemicals in substrain are absorbed even after one application and can stay in the blood for up to three weeks. Now. This is a pretty good article. It goes into a lot of depth that we do not need to talk about at all. But I just, this is one thing where sunscreen is safe. It's safer than getting uh, sun sun cancer. It lowers risk for sun uh, for sun damage and getting skin cancer. Did I say sun cancer? Uh, skin cancer. So in general, uh, way more pros than cons. Um, uh, a lot of good, good positive things. And none of the, quote, all natural sunscreens have been shown, shown to be that efficacious or to do much in terms of prevention. So at this point, uh, sunscreen is better than the alternative, which is cancer, uh, getting sun cancer. Sun cancer, I said again, oh my God, skin cancer. Um, But I think that there's going to be more research on this topic. And I'd say have a healthy case of skepticism and we need more information. Uh, I'm still telling patients to use it. I'm still talking about, um, I'm still talking about the pros outweighing the cons. But I think that there are some cons. And so I think things like, hey, just avoiding excessive sun exposure. Hey, wearing big, giant, floppy, ugly hats and make you look like a huge dork. Oh, hey, wearing long sleeves. Um, Things like that, I think, are super valuable to talk about. But I'm definitely not raising panic alarms yet. But I think that there's enough suspicious stuff in the past two years that I'm, I'm skeptical and my, my, uh, my alarm bells are, uh, uh, my 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 guard dogs are on alert for any new research that's going to show some harm. Um, but I think at this point I'm still recommending it because the positives definitely outweigh the cons, um, and there has been um, no clinical 
proof at this point in real life studied patients about the harms. But again, I would not be surprised to hear in the next five or 10 years research coming down the pike saying, oh, hey, by the way, sunscreen is actually bad for you. Maybe just don't use anything and avoid the sun. So um, again, more to come on that. Don't freak out. Don't change practice. Still recommend sunscreen. But as clinicians, eh, keep a healthy level of skepticism about it. Um, and I, that's it. We're, we're at 15 minutes, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, uh, robots and uh, Russian bots out there. Um, so uh, thank you for listening today to the Primary Care Podcast. Uh, we'll get more at you next week. Uh, this has been Dr. Mark List telling you you don't have to stay up tonight. You don't have to stay up all night to stay up to date. I'm going to learn how to talk next week and come back and not mess things up. Uh, thanks. Have a good night.